Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. So before we hop into things, here's a list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So we discuss biomedical and neuroimaging, computational shape analysis inside the body and out. We also discuss two different kinds of boundary fitting algorithms, which are absolutely fascinating. And we discuss deep learning and neural networks and their implication within the research discussed today. So let's hop into it. Poolkit Kandelwal is a bioengineering PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He is supervised by Professor Paul Yushkevich at the Penn Image Computing and Science Laboratory. He's also pursuing a minor in social, affective, and cognitive neuroscience. Before that, he spent three wonderful years in Montreal, which is where I am right now, where he completed his master's in computer science, and he was working in the shape analysis group at McGill University. Before that, Pulkit completed his bachelor's degree in electronics and communication engineering in India. His main research interests now lie in biomedical image analysis, dealing with high-dimensional volumetric images using imaging techniques like CT and MRI. His work comprises several domains, such as differential equations, shape analysis, computer vision, deep learning, and network science, and we'll try and touch on all these today. He's got a chance to travel to do several cool internships at the University of Queensland in Australia, Planet Labs in San Francisco, the University of Saskatchewan, and at Imagia in Montreal. In his free time, you can find Pulkit on a lookout for a new cafe where he likes to nerd out on coffee, indie folk music, reading books, and talking about foreign TV shows or documentaries that he's surely been binge-watching. A fun fact about him is that he's never lived in a city for more than about two to three years. Well, we now have him for a solid 40 minutes, so Pulkit, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm excited to be here. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. This is exciting. So you're you actually the first guest we have who has uh, specifically a background in computer science. We've had episode seven, Jacob Buckman, who is working in AI. And so he most likely had some background as well. But you're working in computer imaging, which is incredibly fascinating. And I personally love the fact that you are now doing research at the intersection of computer science and neuroscience. So neuroscience is definitely related to my background in psychology. And we've had many neuroscientists on the podcast already. I'm curious to know just like what got you interested in neuroscience? You were, you were working in computer science and now you have applications in neuroscience. How did you get there? What interested you about it? Yes, uh, that's actually a very interesting question. So when I was in my undergraduate studies, I was actually doing electronics engineering, where I majored in digital signal processing and digital image processing. From there, I got interested into much more mathematical nuances. So I pursued a computer science master's at McGill, where I studied machine learning, computer vision, shape analysis. 
But all the applications of my research at McGill was basically biomedical image analysis, which is essentially intersection of image analysis from computer science, machine learning from computer science, and applied to complex biomedical images. Now, neuroscience comes into the picture whenever I deal with neuroimages. So that's how I got interested. And then I was like, I should get a PhD in biomedical imaging because that's really cool. It's a really cool intersection of, you know, different fields. There are just so many amazing problems. And ever since I've just been hooked to it. That's awesome. That's, I mean, partly what, what, what drew me to you was I actually found you online and you just seem to have an incredibly interesting academic background, which has now become abundantly clear. So I totally back this, this intersection here. It's a beautiful intersection between neuroscience and computer science. You said that you've done different kinds of biomedical imaging. And of course, when you're imaging the brain, that's where we get this neuroscience component. What other parts of the body and what other kind of imaging were you doing besides neuroimaging? So neuroimaging is actually something which I got recently into. Before that, I was doing computed tomography images for the human vertebrae. So you take CT scans of the spine. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the other things that I was working on. And what were you trying to find out by looking at CT scans of spines? Right. This particular project was when I was in McGill doing my master's. I was actually in a computer science department uh, working in the shape analysis group. And my co-supervisor, he is based out of Montreal Neurological Institute. And I'm sure you have had many guests on this podcast from that institute. We've had a bunch, yeah. So they work on this in this particular field called image-guided surgery, where they use real-time image analysis to guide and help surgeons to perform surgeries in real time. And the lab that I was working with jointly is the Neuroimaging and Neuronavigation Lab at MNI. One of the problems they had was the surgery of spine. Basically, people, especially older adults or people in their 40s or 50s who have dislocated vertebrae, fractured vertebrae, they want to get that repaired, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, there are two kinds of images that our surgeons usually acquire. One is called a preoperative image. So the image that you acquire before the surgery, usually that is taken via computer tomography. And then there is another set of images which they take, which is called ultrasound images, right? Yep. And that is taken during the surgery. So those ultrasound scans are basically intraoperative images. Now, the problem over here is that so there are two things here. The first thing is that with these preoperative, like CT images are basically, uh, CT stands for computer tomography images. And with CT images, you can actually visualize bone and non-bone structures. So CT essentially is based on x-rays. So if you take a CT scan, you will see that the bones are white in color and all the surrounding soft tissue structure is gray in color. So basically the bone stands out, right? All the hard structure stands out. That's the property of CT, which is really helpful in uh, detecting fractures. So whenever you go to a doctor to see your dislocated arm or leg, the first thing you take is either a CT or an X-ray. So, okay, so before the surgery, we acquire CT images of the patient of let's say if the patient has 
or fracture in the lumbar vertebrae. So we take the images of the lumbar region. During the surgery, we take ultrasound images because it's impossible or it's, it's very time consuming to take CT scanned during the surgery. And ultrasound scans are really great at that because you can just take it in a few seconds or a few minutes and you can do that in real time. So what I'm trying to get over here is how do we combine CT images and ultrasound images to help the surgeon better perform the surgery? If you want to combine two different kinds of imaging, is there some kind of external software you need to use to do that? And can you combine previous CT images with the real-time ultrasound images? So once you have these CT images, you want to segment them, right? You want to segment out the particular bone region that you're interested in, in operating. And segmentation is basically you want to label your different tissues in the images as one or zeros, or if it's a binary segmentation. So in this case, it would be I'll label all the required bone region as one and everything else as zero. Okay. Now, segmenting out this, these bone structures automatically from a CT image that's where my research came into the picture. So that, that is what I was working on. Now, coming back to your question of how do we combine CT and ultrasound images. So what we essentially do is, once we have these segmented 3D models of the bone structure in the CT images, we want to register these bone structures to the ultrasound images, which is taken intraoperatively. Now I'll define the term registration. So registration is essentially, you want to make sure that your 3D models in the CT images, they are perfectly aligned with the interoperative ultrasound scans. Right, it's like a superposition. It's like a superposition. So basically what you do is you take your ultrasound image, you take your CT image, and remember everything is happening in high dimension space. It's 3D images, nothing in 2D images. So whenever, whatever I've been saying till now, an image, it's not a 2D image, it's a high volume metric image. Yeah. So we register or we try to align these two images while the, while the surgeon is performing the operation. And by doing so, what the surgeon can see on this screen is where exactly they are navigating within the patient's body. Because once you go deep inside the vertebrae, it gets really tedious to see where exactly the surgical instruments are with respect to the patient's anatomy. So that's where these two images help in neuronavigation or surgical navigation and implantation. So this is, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm almost just scared to, to ask, how did we do these kinds of surgeries before the kind of research you're working on came into being? Were we just kind of blindly shoving screws into people's lumbars? So, so that's a very, very nice question. So I was reading some statistic, which I can't remember on top of my head. I was talking to a radiologist here at Penn. Yeah. Uh, he said that surgeons actually get these incisions wrong all the time. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think, yeah, this neuronavigation, a surgical navigation thing, I don't know how it, it was done before this, uh, maybe just by the eye and seeing where it goes. So I'm curious then, if you are now working on this kind of groundbreaking research that involves kind of superposing two different kinds of imaging, one, you know, preoperative and one intraoperative, without maybe getting too crazy, what kind of like mathematical background does somebody have to have to 
to solve the kind of problems that, that you're solving. You mentioned differential equations. So do you have extensive background in calculus? Yeah, so that's exactly what I was doing for my master's research. So I was doing the first part of this project. Uh, this was the whole high level thing that I just described to you. Yeah. So the exact problem that I was working on was on the preoperative CT scans of uh, the vertebrae. So my task was to basically segment the vertebrae out from those CT scans. That has to be been automatically, right? Uh, because you don't want a neurosurgeon to spend all his time segmenting those out. Right, so coming back to your question, yes, calculus is needed. Definitely calculus, linear algebra. These are like the workhorse instruments that you should have under your belt. So I had taken a course of differential equations in my undergrad. So when I joined the shape analysis lab in the computer science department, my professor, he's an expert in differential equations. He connected me with this, uh, his colleague at MNI, whose project is basically image guided surgery. And they wanted to segment these images. And he had this expertise of differential equations. I'd like to read another passage from Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. This is book two, passage five. Concentrate every minute like a Roman on doing what's in front of you with precise and genuine seriousness, tenderly, willingly, with justice, and on freeing yourself from all other distractions. Yes, you can, if you do everything as if it were the last thing you were doing in your life. And stop being aimless. Stop letting your emotions override what your mind tells you. Stop being hypocritical, self-centered, irritable. You see how few things you have to do to live a satisfying and reverent life? If you can manage this, that's all even the gods can ask of you. We'll discuss this further during the second break. Now back to the episode. So what exactly goes into this process of segmentation? There's this whole field of computational geometry, which as the name suggests, you are doing geometry and topology on uh, high dimensional shapes, on high dimensional images using computational tools, right? What I use for these segmentation algorithms is, called, is something called level set algorithms, which are based on differential equations. Level set, uh, it was first introduced in computational physics back in the 1980s. From there, they got into this image analysis, computer vision, biomedical image analysis field. And ever since, uh, they have been like one of the main tools to segment sure, yeah. images. Let's take a simple example. Let's start with a 2D example. So imagine you have a 2D image, you have some shape. Now, what you wanna do is you start with some initial curve, right? Yeah. You draw some random curve surrounding that particular object. Now you have that curve and you want to evolve that curve in such a way that after your entire algorithm has run its course, it essentially hugs that particular objects and it delineates it for you. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a shrink wrapping. Exactly, exactly shrink wrapping. Now it can go the other way around too. Now this time imagine you have one object and you are inside that object. Yeah. So now you can start with a dot, just place a small dot, hmm. yeah. maybe one pixel wide, or if you're in a high, high dimensional image, so maybe one or two voxels. So just, yeah. just put a point over there. And now let that grow instead of shrink wrapping. Now you can grow that out, right? Hmm. Now you yeah. keep, keep on growing that out. 
until unless it reaches the boundary of that object that you are interested in to segment. That's so cool. Now that's another way that you get that segmentation out, right? Either you can shrink wrap it, or you can from outside to inside, outside to the boundary, or you can go from a dot, which is basically inside the object towards the boundary. Can you use both of those to optimize the boundary? Yeah, so depending upon your problem or a region of interest, whichever way you wanna go, you can go. Okay, so do you use both of these? Yeah, so I use both of these. It's essentially the same idea. The underlying math is the same. It's yeah. just that, uh, think of it as just changing a sign, you know, plus to a minus. So sure. if it's plus, yeah. you're going inside. Okay. If, you're going, if it's minus, you're going outside. That's it. All the equations remain the same. Yeah. One of, one of the main focuses and one of the buzzwords you, you keep hitting on is, is this idea of shape analysis. So what actually goes into shape analysis? Perfect. So now the whole idea is to delineate that boundary, right? Yep. And remember that you are, the image that you have is really complex. For example, a bone image is surrounded by tissues, especially the vertebrae, it is surrounded by the spinal cord. There might be other structures, other tissues surrounding it. You also know that an image is made up of these gray scale levels, right? The bone gray scale level is really different from the surrounding structures. And even in the surrounding structures, you have a wide array of gray scale values. So three things mainly go into these differential equations. How does the inside of the bone looks from the outside? So that's where I would say it's called region-based information. Second thing would be edge information. Where exactly is my edge? So can I use some algorithm to detect the edge itself or the boundary? The third would be, again, to incorporate some prior knowledge we have about our bone population, uh, uh, the shape of the bone. So that would be using shape priors. Now, all these three different kinds of information can go into that differential equation, which is essentially to go back to our original point, the differential equation is modeling curves in 2D and surfaces in 3D. And using these three cues, you can evolve your curve or you can shrink wrap your curve or surface. Mm -hmm. When you say that you can evolve a curve, you're talking about kind of following this iterative recursive process. Exactly. So you start, right. you start with your initial, that seed region that I was talking about initially, that dot, the point. Right. Yeah. Or you can start with that initial curve that you draw outside the region of interest. Right. Yeah. So that would be the inputs to the first iteration, right, of your algorithm. Yeah. And using these three different cues that I just talked about, you let it evolve iteration by iteration until you kind of you see that you're near the boundary and the object is well separated out. Okay. So you, you take your differential equation, you put information in terms of those three cues, you let the differential equation evolve the curve or the surface, and that would essentially give you the object of interest. Yeah. So the good thing about this is that apart from that shape prior, for which you basically need just a few segmented models from before, you actually don't need any massive labeled information over here. So you don't need a lot of training examples with these type of uh, differential equations. So this whole evolution of differential equations, it almost has this flavor of like maybe being able to apply some kind of neural networks or deep learning to 
optimize this process. I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking of evolution. It almost seems like every time your differential equation evolves, it needs to check itself and then see if it's actually evolved in the right direction. Am I thinking in the right way here? Yeah, that's exactly right. But I, I must say that uh, deep learning is something totally different than what I've been talking about right now. So right. essentially, you know that deep learning requires a lot of, they should have a lot of data and all that data should be labeled before you can feed into your neural network. Now, the beauty of these type of level set equations that I've been talking about so far is that essentially you don't need any any label example before. So it's essentially totally unsupervised. Yeah. So that's the beauty. Apart from the shape prior thing for which you require really little label examples, maybe on the order of five to 10 subjects or five to 10 images, that's it. Uh, it's totally unsupervised. Now, coming back to your question of this whole evolution thing. So these differential equations are basically implemented. You give some input, basically your seed region or your initial curve or surface. You feed in some kind of mathematical equation or formula, which takes into account the region etched and shape price that I talked about. And you just iterate it over some n number of iterations. Once you are comfortable with your segmentation, if it looks good, you just stop and that's it. Well, so here's, here's the thing though, is if you need somebody to check to make sure that it's good, doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose of creating this autonomous system? Oh, so I must say here that uh, it's automatic. Everything so far is automatic. So you can stop, you, you can put some condition where, hey, between two iterations, the curve is not evolving any much more further. So I think I have reached my local minimum or the minimum that I've been looking for. And then you check your image, whether it looks good. And uh, if it looks good, then you're good to go. Okay. Here I should mention that there are two kinds of measures which we essentially look out for volume-based measurement and surface-based measurements to evaluate whether your algorithm did good or not. This is, this is extremely reminiscent of the discussion I had on episode 22 with Nadia Blostein. She was particularly interested in the volumes of certain brain structures. So given that you've you know, not only done biomedical image analysis for surgery on vertebrae, but you've also now pivoted a bit towards neuroscience. What aspects of the brain are, are you now focusing on in terms of applying these imaging techniques? Are you looking at cortical structures, right? The surface of the brain, more subcortical structures, deeper structures in, in the brain. This whole time we've been talking about your master's work uh, using differential equations to map boundaries uh, of you know, two-dimensional and three-dimensional objects and surfaces. So I could see how deep learning and neural networks could come into play here in that you can just kind of, you know, feed in some data, some labeled data, as you're saying. And then you can just kind of let these these networks learn how to better map these these regions. Right, exactly. So after I did my master's, now I've moved here to UPenn in Philly. Currently, what I've been doing is something called domain generalization and domain adaptation, which comes under the umbrella of transfer learning and deep learning. So let me start this with an example. Imagine you have some classification task and the images that you are given falls into four categories. Imagine you have pictures, artistic paintings, cartoons, and you have sketches. So PACS, P-A-C-S, 
Again, okay, pictures, art paintings, cartoons, and sketches. These are your four domains. And the images that you have are normal day-to-day -day objects, let's say ball, cat, speakers, table, chair, what have you. So it's a object classification task. Now, imagine in a real world setting, you're given a lot of training examples, uh, in fact, label training examples, I must say, uh, of pictures, arts, and cartoons, these three domains in your training data set. So now you have trained your model, uh, your model achieves a really high accuracy, you can easily classify a lot of images well on these three domains. But now you have put your model in the real world and all you see is sketches and now you want to classify images in that sketch domain. What you notice is that once you deploy a model in the real world, your model terribly fails. Now why does that happen? Because in your training examples, you had information only from three domains, right? You had information from pictures, arts, and cartoons. You had no information in sketches. So there is a shift of statistical properties between your training data and your test data, as is apparent by the three domains you had in your training data versus one in your test data. Now your model is good as long as it has seen distributions from both the training and the test domains, right? Yeah. What you want to do over here is you want to generalize your model so that it is also able to classify images in that sketch domain, which you had no information about in your training data set. So that is the whole field of uh, domain generalization and adaptation. So just to provide a bit of context, last episode I said I was going to start reading Passages from Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. It's kind of like his personal journal that ended up being translated and published now more than 2,000 years later. So the passage that I read from earlier, passage 5 in book 2, is all about focus and doing things with intention. So if you've got a to-do list, you've got a task list, if you want to sit down and prioritize what it is that is plaguing your mind if you're stressed out about the fact that you got lots to do figure out what you need to get done and do it with intention be focused on what you're doing if you sit down to do one task don't be lost thinking about something else unrelated marcus Aurelius's viewpoint on life is often surrounded by the idea that it's really s simple to live a good life there are a few key things you need to focus on one of those things here is being present and managing your thoughts. So for the next 10-12 minutes as you finish up this episode of Abstract, be present, be mindful of thoughts that come in and let them just pass as you enjoy the discussion. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, so this is great. If we're gonna apply this then to scanning human bodies, which are definitely very complex, in this case, what would the different kinds of domains be? See, obviously, when you scan a human body, it's you're not looking at a cartoon. <laughs> you're looking at the real thing. So it, we're always seeing real images of brain structures and of spinal cords. So are there other domains that we need to generalize from? Oh, yeah. So imagine you work at one particular hospital and you acquire a lot of images of whatever organ that you're interested in, be it brain, be it spine, be it liver. And you want to segment your particular region of interest from the images that you acquired at that particular hospital using some particular uh, vendor. Let's say you are using GE, General Electric, MRI machine 
with a particular sequence to image your patients. And you have developed this very nice algorithm which nicely segments whatever region you are interested in in that particular cohort. But now you are given new data set from some other hospital which was scanned using some other machine. And now you're given the task, hey, let me try to segment images in that particular new data set that, I've, that you just received from the new hospital. And what you notice is that your algorithm fails because even though it's the same structure, it's the same modality that is you're still acquiring magnetic resonance images in both the hospitals. That's crazy. So this is, this is so subtle. That's like if we go back to the PAX example, instead of comparing pictures and artistic renditions and everything else, now it's almost like you show pictures taken with a specific type of camera and then you show pictures taken with a different type of camera and then it just, it just fails again because it's, it's a new camera even though you're taking pictures of, of real world objects. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy and uh, this happens all the time. So here's my question then. How far, like if we're gonna take this, this generalization to the nth degree, how far do you think you can generalize and how optimistic are you that you can get there? I don't know how best to answer that question. I can give you another example that I mentioned in the paper. We have this very large data set of labeled vertebrae which has around 300 scans from across a variety of hospitals encompassing both disease populations, healthy populations, patients who already have pedicle screws implanted in them. So I want to be able to generalize the algorithm across all these images. And also I should mention that uh, all the images are not acquired at the same resolution, right? Some images are acquired at a higher resolution and the ones which are not, they are just really hard to segment. I would say this is the closest real world scenario that you can see. Right. Generalization across uh, healthy disease populations, across different resolutions and hospital sites. And we were able to show that this domain generation method could segment out images pretty well whose distribution it has not seen in the training set. So that's, I think, pretty, pretty cool. When you say not in the training set, you mean, let's say, from a different hospital? From a different hospital, or th that's one thing, for, uh, with a different resolution, the quality of images. Uh, so these CT images, let's say, they are acquired at low dose or high dose, right? And a low dose image is really, really bad to look at. <laughs> like, it's really hard to delineate yeah. the, the boundaries. Right. So, yeah, it was able to segment okay. these. That's fantastic. So, okay, so you just published a paper that basically lends credence to what you're currently working on. And so clearly your PhD is not finished yet. Just to kind of finish us off, after this I have one more question, but what are you going to be working on now for the next year or so? How are you going to be continuing to develop this algorithm? So this was the first, first pass of the algorithm that we published. But the main task is, which we haven't really touched about, we have been talking about spine a lot, but there's this other thing that I do, other thing that I'm supposed to do in the rest of the PhD is work on neuroimaging. Yeah. So I work in a lab which deals with medial temporal lobe. Medial temporal lobe is a region which is responsible mainly for memories. It consists of the hippocampus, entorhinal hippocampus, parahippocampus, parahippocampal cortex. Okay, that's too much anatomy, I guess. But we know that medial temporal lobe is one of the first regions which gets affected when uh, 
someone has a neurodegenerative disease such as Alzheimer's. So this is a cool thing. I was listening to your podcast and there was this episode on shape and brain volumes, I guess. Yeah, that was Nadia Blostein who I yeah. mentioned earlier, episode 22, yeah. So her advisor, Malar Chakravarti, he was actually a PhD student of my course supervisor at the MNI. And, uh, <laughs> wow. so, and here at Penn, our lab actually does the same thing. We are essentially, we essentially work on the same problems as Nadia's lab, Malar's lab. So we are again segmenting the hippocampus, working in shape analysis, uh, developing algorithms, developing software to see the volumetric and shape changes of the medial temporal lobe. We also work on ex vivo and in vivo images. So in vivo images, something where you acquire images when a patient is alive, right? Right in the machine. Ex vivo images, something which you basically grab the brain out of the patient when they are dead and scan that. Now with XVM images is that one thing that you can do is you can scan that at really high resolution, mm-hmm. which wouldn't have been possible with in vivo images because of the high magnetic strength, right? Yeah. So now with these XVM images, we get much more clear, clear delineation of the subfields of the hippocampus and the surrounding structures, okay. which wouldn't have been possible with the quote unquote normal uh, in vivo MRI images. So can we use these ex vivo images to not only understand the shape and volumes at a course level, but we can also look at the cells at the microscopic levels. So we can acquire pathological slides in the ex vivo images. So you can actually look at neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques, which are the two proteins which are responsible for Alzheimer's disease. And you can map that out in the different regions and study how, how they grow, how, how basically, where does Alzheimer's exactly start? What is the pattern of these proteins? So wow. that's, the, that's the overall idea I was trying to give of the lab. So coming back to your question of how does domain generation helps in this. So now, again, I'm a segmentation guy. My task is to segment hippocampus and surrounding structures or the white matter and gray matter in the ex vivo images, right? Got it. But remember, we have been working on this for a very long time with in vivo images. So we have a lot of labeled training example in in vivo images. So we have the cortex labeled, uh, we have the white matter labeled, we have the medial temporal lobe labeled for the difference of fields and surrounding structures. But now we have been given this new ex vivo images. Okay, I see where we're going here. Right, you have the ex vivo, so now you want to generalize the in vivo to the ex vivo. Right, so can we use uh, information from in vivo to generalize to ex vivo? Because again, ex vivo has recently been acquired. These are really, really high resolution and large images. Manually segmenting them, even for generating some ground truth training examples, it's a time consuming process. Understand. You still want to label some of them semi automatically with the help of a trained expert just so you know what would be the ground truth. But the pulp part of it is that you want to label everything automatically. Yeah. That's where domain generation comes into the picture. Can I use information from in vivo images and then generalize that to segment my hippocampus or white matter, gray matter and ex vivo images? That's beautiful. It's amazing, yeah, like this technique that you're talking about here, this whole segmentation, uh, it's... 
it seems like there are such broad applications for it just throughout the human body. There's no limit to the number of structures on macroscopic and microscopic scales that you can try and map out using this kind of technique. It's a beautiful piece of technology that you're working on, and I'm, I'm glad that you are on the podcast today to tell us about it. This is the future of science, and so you are just doing your part to contribute to that. I do have one last question for you. There are a thousand people listening to you right now, and you have their undivided attention. What do you tell them? Yes, so I would tell them that do a lot of different things, really do a lot of different things, uh, because often the best ideas that you might come across lies at the intersection of different domains, different fields. Uh, talk to a lot of people, talk to professors, talk to postdocs, talk to normal people who don't know anything about your research and try to explain them and try to gain their perspectives. I think all these things definitely will help you make a better PhD student or a better researcher. That's awesome. I totally back that. And I honestly think that what you just said applies to people who aren't even students. So if you're listening right now and you're not a researcher yourself, you can still do yourself wonders by diversifying your interests, talking to people, networking in your own domain. And it's just going to pay dividends. I think everybody who is touched by cognitive science ends up feeling this way because it's such a grab bag of a field that you just end up developing this love for diversity and intersection between various different fields. So thank you so much, Pulkit. It's been awesome having you on the podcast. I, I hope that towards the end of your degree, I can maybe bring you back on and we can focus a little bit more on the neuroscience aspect now that we've laid the whole foundation of the background of what you're working with. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Uh, it was really nice to be here and speak about my research. Always excited, yeah. Nice. Okay, well, have a great afternoon. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. Take it easy.